0: Uh, we will be taking a break from the book of Mark today, and so the words that I'd like to direct your attention to will actually be in the book of Ephesians. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, I'm going to read verses 17 to the end of the chapter, and then focus in particular today on verses 25 through 27. So today's text is Ephesians 4:25 through 27, but I'm going to begin reading at verse... And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Given what uh, is going on in in the world right now, I thought it would be helpful to turn our eyes to Ephesians chapter 4 and and examine in particular two commands, and that's the command to speak the truth and to honor God in our anger. And that's really the outline of today's message, to not deceive others by lying and to not be deceived by anger. And, and And I want to address this because there is a lot of lies and a lot of anger in the world right now. And it, it, it makes me wonder as you uh, were going about this week and uh, listen to the news or in engaging with people at work. Did you ever ask yourself or wonder how much you've been lied to? Or how often you were lied to? It's a scary thought. When you think of all that's said in the news by whatever station in the newspapers Uh, what's if you're a if you're a merchant how often your customers are lying to you or if your customer how often merchants are lying to you how often your family members are deceiving you have you ever thought about how often you're being deceived in advertisement so that you would buy a product and it really it, it it prompts this question who can you trust Especially when there is so much disagreement about so many things. Who is it that you do trust? And as Christians, the, the amount of deception in the world shouldn't deceive us. Because we know, according to John eight forty four, 44, that the whole world is in the power of the evil one, who is Satan. And Satan, in that verse, is called by Jesus, the father of all lies. And the church has always had to face lies. That, is, that has been the battle of the church from the beginning. Uh, the, the apostles, right after they planted churches in Ephesus or in Thessalonica or in uh, other parts of Greece or in Asia, always had to combat lies, whether that's just in the culture or actually springing up from the church themselves. And throughout church history, many lies have faced the church. And the church today faces many lies. Lies regarding sexuality, generals, uh, the nature of the atonement. Many others we can mention. And I think all those lies need to be addressed. However, if you were to ask me, if you were to pin me down and ask what I think is the greatest lie facing the church today. I would say it is the lie that ethics are determined by feelings rather than objective truth another way to say that is right and wrong are ultimately right and wrong is ultimately determined by how i feel not by what god says and i think if you were asked most people in the world the question who do you trust ultimately speaking they would say, probably say themselves i trust my heart i trust my own convictions and I think when Christians, or when the church buys into this lie, it looks a little different. It's not that, that, that Christians actually think that what God has said isn't true. Obviously, if they did, they wouldn't be Christians. They, they would believe what the Word of God says, but how this gets manifested is when what they feel contradicts what God says. And so it's not that they disbelieve what he says, but how they feel they think should override what God says. It's as if their feelings are like an exception clause to God's commands. They might say something like, if you understood my situation, if you understood my feelings, uh, you would realize that command really doesn't apply to me. I'm a special circumstance. And sometimes some people will be just outright Honest and say, well, I just don't feel like obeying the command. And actually believe because they don't feel like obeying the command, they don't have to. And what's particularly pernicious about this lie is that we can easily be deceived by our emotions. And that's not because emotions are bad. Emotions are a good thing. Um, They just aren't very trustworthy. And just think about all the variety of emotions that you feel Anger, uh, love, joy, compassion, lust, fear. All of those emotions can be helpful and in some cases good. But nonetheless, they're not trustworthy. And in light of this, I want to look at Ephesians 4, 25 through 27, because it's here that Paul specifically addresses both deceit and anger and emotion. But before we look at it, it's, it's critical that we consider the context. That's why I read beginning at verse 17 of Ephesians 4, A beginning in Ephesians 4, in verses 1 through 16, Paul explains God's design for the church, its purpose and how it's supposed to grow. And then beginning in verse 17, he tells believers that in light of that, They need to live radically different lives. They cannot live the way they used to. They need to live like Christ, not like the world, but like Christ. And so then in verses 25 through 32, Paul just lists specific commands that will show how believers are distinct from the world, how they are holy, how they are sanctified. They're not the way they used to be. And these are the commands he mentions. Speak the truth be angry, don't sin, don't steal, speak in an edifying way, not corruptly, put away anger in all of its insidious forms and instead be Christ-like. And again here, the point is in light of everything that God has done for you in Christ, all that he's given you, giving you new life, causing you to be born again, setting you free from your slavery to sin, in light of all of that We need to honor God in our behavior as Christians. And it's important that we realize that this is not just advice. This is not just good counsel. These are apostolic commands. They need to be obeyed. And yet, Christians, they'll stumble in regard to these things. Many of us probably already have even today. But even as we stumble into things, even as we disobey these commands, we should never offer an excuse or seek to justify our sin. But rather, when we do sin, we should confess it, acknowledge it, and then repent of it. But let's look at each of these commands a little more in depth. He begins by saying in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. And notice he begins his exhortation in verse 25 with the word therefore. And As you've been taught, when you read the scripture and you see a therefore, you need to ask, what is that therefore, therefore? And that's because conjunctions are really important for interpretation because they set verses, particularly commands in their conduct context. Um, They're key to getting interpretation right. They clarify meaning. Well, what's the context of verse 25? Well, notice that Paul has just exhorted the Ephesians in the per- previous paragraph to lay aside the old self that is being corrupted according to the lust of the sea. And so he says, therefore, put off falsehood, which is a kind of deceit. You're not, uh, no, you're no longer under the realm of deception in that uh, domain of death and darkness. You are children of light, live in the light not in deceit. Instead, we need to be characterized by truth. And so he says, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. This is actually a quote from Zechariah 8.16. And this is a very difficult command for us Christians to obey um, because we live in a culture that is driven by deception. As mentioned earlier, it's in advertising, advertising, Deception happens in business deals. It happens in sales. Talk radio. How often you listen to talk radio, the, the guys leading the discussion aren't interested in the truth. They're just interested in winning arguments. And it just muddies the truth. And if the clarity is not brought. All it does is instigate emotions for the most part. We expect politicians to be duplicitous. In families, unfaithfulness and divorce is just expected. It's rampant. In sports, we see flopping like in, on the soccer field or almost in every sport, doping using steroids of some sort is, is now commonplace. It no longer shocks us. In fact, w- it's just par for the course. We're not shocked. We live in a culture that is dominated by deceit. And because deception is so much a part of our culture, it's very easy even for Christians to justify being deceptive. By telling half-truths or avoiding speaking the truth altogether. Any common excuses we tell ourselves to justify lying are things like this. Well, I can't explain to this person the whole situation, so I'm just going to lie. Just because it's easier. It's not, I don't have the time. Nor would they understand. Or they might. you might tell yourself, well, the truth would hurt this person more than a lie. and And Christians really what they should be most concerned about is not hurting other people. And so I'm just going to lie to them instead. Or if you work for an employer that expects you to lie, you might justify it by saying, well, it's my job to lie. Maybe you say, I will will tell people what they want to hear instead of the truth. As if telling people what they want to hear matters more than the truth. And often, as mentioned before as well, we think because I feel this is what is true, then I can assume it is what is true. And I think it's really important that we remember that Paul is talking to Christians here. He's not talking to unbelievers. Paul is very much aware of the temptation to deceive, to commit all of these sins that he warns us in in these verses. Nevertheless, as easy it is, as, as common a temptation it is, it is never acceptable to lie. And it is especially unacceptable to justify lying, to justify deception. Deception will destroy, it is sin. As Sir Walter Scott famously said in his play Marmion, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And if you've ever gotten caught in a lie, you know how easy and how true that is. How easy it is to get uh, tangled even beyond extrication. I think it does prompt this question though, does this mean that we need to tell everybody everything that we're thinking? Well, I think um, this needs wisdom. I mean, if a uh, a stranger or somebody that's untrustworthy were to ask you how you're doing i think you'd want to certainly exercise discretion even when you're giving an evaluation for somebody at work that doesn't mean you have to tell that person everything that they've always done wrong you need to think through um what is this person able to um bear what is it that this person needs to hear what is it in the best interest of this person Maybe you have to ask, well, um, is it appropriate for this person to have this information? Are they mature enough to ex- to accept this information? So you need to ask those questions. You should still never deceive. You should never lie. But you can maybe um, just be more vague. You could say something, the effect of, um, oh, I don't feel like I can trust this person with an honest answer to their question. Like let's say they ask how you're doing and. There's just lots of turmoil in your life, but you know this person is just going to spread rumors about you if you're honest. Well, you can say, yeah, there's hard things in my life, but I just don't feel comfortable saying it. That's not lying, but you don't have to necessarily give them all the details. Or you just give a limited response according to what they need to hear. And Jesus does this when people ask him questions, often directly. he, He just won't answer. Or sometimes he just tells them what they need to hear. That's often the case. Throughout the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus do this many times. They ask a question and he redirects it, really getting to the need of that person. And he does that because he he cares about the person. He's not seeking to defend himself. But rather he's driven by what is the truth that this person needs to hear. He wants them to see the truth. He's not hiding the truth. But he's thinking about what is best for them. And so he gives them the truth that they need to hear according to the need. And so you may want to ask yourself this question when it comes to, should I or shouldn't I um, tell this person everything? Well, I think, ask the question, what is my motive in avoiding just being clearly honest? Are you trying to guard your own reputation or are you trying to really care for this person? Is this person just isn't mature enough or you just don't want to be honest. So what's your motive? It takes wisdom. And and notice next the reason Paul gives for this command. He says, For we are members of one another. That's the reason for the command. And so some might assume that well, Paul's just giving good advice, just general axioms, a maxim for good living. Um, but that is not the case. Notice that this command to speak the truth is rooted in two biblical theological principles. First of all, in verse 24, being in Christ, because you're in Christ, speak the truth. And even consider the whole context of Ephesians, especially chapters one and two. The second principle this is rooted in is being part of the body of Christ. Look at verse 25. So in light of the fact that you've been born again and united to Christ, and because you are now members of his body, members with one another, don't deceive. We are to speak the truth to one another because as members of the church, our well-being is inter, inter, inextricably linked. And, and Paul uses the word member, referencing back to the illustration he used earlier in the chapter that we are members of the body of Christ. Again, a member is a part of the body. And when there is miscommunication between body parts, we would call that a serious medical condition. Uh, when a person has a stroke, it's because the communication has broken down between body parts and the brain. There's, there's, um, it's a nervous problem, problem in the nerves in communicating with the brain. When this happens in the body of Christ, it's similarly a severe problem. So if, a, if, if the body of Christ is lying to one another, we are as unhealthy and as limited, as injured, as a person who has just had a severe stroke. And we need to recognize that. We're all part of the body of Christ when you speak the truth to one another so we need to speak the truth secondly we need to honor god with our anger he says in verse 26 be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil notice that there's just two very simple commands given be angry and do not sin Uh, the word be angry is the greek word orgizomai it refers to a Person's anger in the Old Testament, 22 times, uh, 39 times. It refers to God, though. So God far more times, almost twice as much. And in the New Testament, it's used eight times, and that's always in reference to a human. So this is something that is characteristic of God, I want to point out. Secondly, the word sin is hamartano, and it's just the general word for sin. It means to miss the mark, but it's to miss the mark purposefully not inadvertently it's a deliberate false step so various interpretations of what this could mean when he says be angry and do not sin some suggest that it means if you do get angry be sure you do not sin the problem with this interpretation is the coordinating conjunction and makes the statements equal be angry and sin. And that, the, if you get angry, wouldn't follow that. And plus there's no conditional article if. So it's probably not the best way to render it. Some uh, render this be angry because I cannot stop you or you can stop yourself, but do not sin. The problem with this is that it would be very strange to have two imperatives with the coordinating conjunction who have very different senses. So it's best to really interpret this as two parallel commands with equal force, equal emphasis. Be angry, and do not sin. So this is best interpreted as a command, and this is the com- this command is actually rooted, as you might have recognized, in Psalm 4. To give the context of Psalm 4, uh, this is an individual lament where the psalmist is grieving over uh, the oppression from his enemies and he requests God's aid in light of the aid that God has given him in the past. And in verse four, he warns his enemies that God hears his prayers. And so he tells them be angry, but do not sin. And what's remarkable about this is he has a really good understanding of, uh, sin and that sin is not ultimately something that's done against us. But it's primarily something that's done against God. And so, what he's saying is, in effect, you can be angry against me, but do not sin, because in your sin, you will be incurring the wrath and judgment of God. In other words, what matters is not even so much how I feel, but what is right or unright in God's eyes. You need to evaluate your life in light of God. But he's honest about how he feels. I'm offended. I'm scared. But nevertheless, what he's most concerned about is that they do not sin. So, be angry. If I've sinned against you, it's right for you to be angry. But do not sin. So, being angry is a command. And this shows that anger is not intrinsically sinful. Anger is, is an emotion, like other emotions. Fear and love and joy. And anger over evil is good. However, anger, because things don't go your way, is bad. But anger can be very good. And we know this because God gets angry. The difference is that when God gets angry, it's always on account of sin. However, when we get angry, it's very easy to be controlled by our anger and therefore to be led into sin. I mean, how odd that often we can be angry over sin initially. Somebody does, somebody commits sin, and we're offended by that, and we're angry, and yet in our anger we are actually led into sin, which is just hypocrisy. And so it, it's important that that we ask the question: How do I know if my anger is righteous? Well, I think you need to ask the question. Are you angry over sin and its consequences or just angry at the hurt? Is it sin that you're angry at or the offense? And I think ask, are you willing to pursue biblical channels of reconciliation or are you sulking? Do you really want to see restoration happen or are you looking for an excuse to feel sorry for yourself? To lick your wounds? Even ask yourself, what's your goal? for that person, for yourself, is it furthering God's kingdom in some way, or is it directing attention towards you, getting what you want in some way or form? Again, righteous anger is good. It's good to be angry over sin, but unrighteous, selfish anger is destructive. So, whether your anger is righteous or unrighteous, either way, it is sin. We don't have justification to sin. And many Christians assume that because they've been sinned against, that actually gives them the right to be angry. But that's patently false. And again, one of the common defenses for justifying sin is well, if you understood how greatly I've been wronged, how Uh, deeply I have been wounded, you would not expect me to have to obey this command. So this command doesn't apply to me because I have been so severely wounded. In other words, my situation justifies my sinful behavior. And I think, true, if I understood how deeply you have been wounded and hurt, yeah, it it would make it more rational, more understandable why how, why it is so easy for you to sin. It makes it more understandable, but it certainly doesn't justify it. Those are two different things. And I think it's helpful to understand a person's context and wounding. So even you can help them, uh, just really counsel them better and, and, and understand them better. Um, and, and even show appropriate compassion at the same time, Never under any circumstances is sin ever justified. So, after telling the Ephesians to be angry over sin, and he tells them this is not license to sin, he then offers this warning regarding anger. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And the word that Paul uses for anger here, interestingly enough, is intensified. it probably refers to a festering bitterness. And when anger festers over time, it's prone to outbursts of anger. The, The emotion controls you and you say often violent things, causing one to sin. And the point that Paul is making here is deal with your anger. Don't let it fester. Recognize what's going on. Recognize what's causing it. If you need to confront a person, confront them. Deal with your anger. Don't let it fester. And recognizably, that sometimes this takes time, because we're complicated creatures. But you still want to deal with it. Now, this this brings up the common question: Well, what if a husband and a wife get into a conflict right before bedtime? Uh, do they have to completely solve that situation before? They go to bed. Do they have to be able to bury the hatchet, so to speak, before they go to sleep? Well, I think that does take wisdom as well. Uh, We need to consider what's the principle here. The the principle is don't let anger fester. Confront what's bothering you. And so you may need to ask yourself, well, what is the loving thing to do? What's what's in the best interest of my spouse? You might recognize that pursuing this is only going to make matters worse so giving it time is actually going to help but you're not avoiding the issue you're actually uh, setting up a context to deal with it in in a more productive manner and and this is seen in youth sports often they have a 24 hour a 48 hour rule if the coach does something that offends you as a parent you're angry that your son isn't getting enough time pitching for instance instead of fuming um Right after the game and giving the coach an earful, you you take 48 hours and then you can uh, pass along your grievance in an email explaining uh, what happened. And really, usually what 48 hours will do is it gives a person time to really think and not be driven by emotion. They're not a they're not ignoring the offense or their concern. They're still addressing it, but they're addressing it in a manner that will be productive for reconciliation. That's really the principle. So address the sin. There may be a better time to address it. If so, address it a better time, but still make sure it's addressed. And then he says in verse twenty-seven, "Don't give the devil an opportunity." Interesting. Paul chooses to word the uh, sorry. <laughs> Paul chooses to use the word diabolos instead of the normal word he uses, which is satanos, Satan. He calls him. The devil, the word diabolos, means deceiver. And consider the context of deception here in Ephesians 4. So how does the devil, the deceiver, use anger to accomplish his purposes? Well again, festering anger has this ability to confuse our understanding of a situation. It's very persuasive to convince us that we are right. Angers. Just one of those emotions is just very uh, powerful in coloring our interpretation. And, And we can easily justify ourselves in when we're possessed by the power of anger. I mean, again, just think how an angry drunk can mercilessly beat his children and think he is doing the right thing at that moment. Not because he is, but because he's convinced that he's doing the right thing uh um dale carnegie uh once interviewed uh and researched a a number of criminals who had committed atrocious acts and uh, recognized that all of those criminals believed they really at heart were good guys and that they really were justified in in committing the acts that they did and if you understood those acts it, it would be hard to understand how any human could do those things but for them they were fully justified why Because they were getting their ethics based upon, their ethical principle was based upon how they felt. And if they were angry, then that feeling just justified that they were all the more in the right. They were just following what they understood to be right. And when Christians buy into that same sort of insanity, um, it's easy to see why they then go and sin. Festering anger can convince a person that they are doing right in the most awful situations. And again, Christians are often deceived by their anger after their feelings are hurt. I mean, often what happens is we, we read an email or um, a text and we begin to... We're, we're offended by maybe what somebody said. The emoji wasn't quite the emoji that we were looking for. And we begin to wonder what's going on in this person's heart. Um, what sin might they have committed that's leading to them to have so much animosity to are they they falling away from Christ Um, we imagine this great evil that must be going on in the heart of that person that would motivate them to do such a thing and the more we think about this uh, the more we assume that this person's motives, the the, the darker and more sinister that person appears. And all of a sudden we forget all the good, all the kindness, all the sacrifices, all the blessings that person has uh, given us in their life. And all of a sudden we have characterized them as to be the devil themselves and totally untrustworthy. This happens all the time and it's, it makes a pastor want to pull their hair out. Just because we have hurt feelings does not mean that we were actually sinned against. I think a good illustration of this is when a guy asks a girl on a date and she turns him down. Did she sin against him? She might have been doing the best thing for him. But he might feel hurt. He might be deeply hurt. He might go home and weep profusely at the wound. But that doesn't, just because he's hurt doesn't mean he was sinned against. And Christians, we need to be aware that just because we're hurt doesn't necessarily mean we were sinned against. And even if we were sinned against, we need to guard ourselves from festering anger. I think another way we can get deceived by anger is kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. We fail to admit it when we're wronged. I think men especially can do this. We want to appear tough or maybe we want to feel humble. We want to misapply the command to turn the other cheek. But when we do this and we don't admit that we are hurt um, and we still meditate or ruminate over the wrong, we're not really being tough. When we say, when somebody sins against us and we say, oh, that's okay. No, it's not okay. If somebody sinned against us, it is sin. It needs to be called sin. It needs to be called out as sin. It needs to be forgiven. Yes, it needs to maybe even show mercy on that person. But don't say it's okay when it's not okay. You could say, um, our, our relationship's okay. The sin wasn't okay. But I am glad that you've acknowledged that. And yes, we are okay. Because... We are dominated by Christ and not by just our feelings. So there's a difference there. Uh, You you may need to turn the other cheek, and you should turn the other cheek, I think, when offended. But make sure that in doing so, you're also not letting, saying you're turning the other cheek, but at the same time, inwardly, you're actually uh, just grieving and that, that, that wound is festering. To do so is not really being tough. We're just deceiving ourselves. So if we're going to overlook a wrong, we need to truly overlook it and move on. And if we we are sinned against, we need to confront it. We need to call it out for what it is. Again, the danger of anger and bitterness is that we can so easily be deceived by it. Well, what are some of the signs of deception from anger? So as a a counselor, one of the signs that I see when people are deceived by their anger is, are some of these things. They assume that all of their assumptions are true. Well, putting the pieces together, I'm pretty sure that this is what was going on in this person's heart. And then speaking as if that's actually what was going on in that person's heart. Very dangerous. When you believe assumptions, it's not wrong to have assumptions. It's not wrong to ask those questions. But when you begin to believe that they're true, be very um, concerned. Be aware. Or when we create fantastic dialogues or stories in our mind about what might have been going on or you can imagine conversations between friends and very dangerous. Um, if you are anticipating the hurt or humiliation of the person who sinned against you, you're being deceived by anger. Or if you have this assumption that you're totally in the right, that 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 person is totally in the wrong, but it, you, when, you, when you begin to forget that you too are a sinner, you too make mistakes, you too often are deceived. But you, when you are convinced that you have a, 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 an obligation in your righteousness to um, destroy all wrongs that you see in that person or in the world. That, that crusader mentality, right? We see this a lot in America. That, that we got to right all the wrongs as if we ourselves have never done any wrong it is immensely hypocritical and proud Christians should never fall into that or when you obsess over your hurt you just can't stop thinking about it you can't stop talking about it you're just you, you just you're like a dog that goes into the corner and just licks its wounds every time it goes home from work especially be concerned if you have Personal goals outlined for vengeance. You're planning on just berating this person at the next meeting. Taking them down from their high horse. Be very careful. Don't be deceived by anger. And so when it comes to being angry in the context of a relationship, we need to examine whether we're really more focused on ourselves or we're focused on... um, God or the interest of that person another way to put it is are we being grace oriented or are we malice oriented in our hearts and minds and, and kids need to think about this as well just because you're younger doesn't mean you can't also be easily deceived by sins and, and, and justify the reason you hit your sister there is no justification for sin so it's not just for adults it's for kids as well I think there are definitely times when anger is justified, when sin is committed. But sin is never justified, especially vengeance. Consider this passage in light of our current social crisis. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 19. Romans 12 verse 19. The Apostle Paul strictly says, beloved Never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the lord that 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 idea vengeance is mine and it, what Jesus what Jesus is saying is it's my obligation it's it's my job it's my responsibility not yours to take vengeance and I will take vengeance verse 20 To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now stop there and then consider the very next thing Paul mentions in his thoughts. He speaks of submission to authorities. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. That's not coincidental. Paul understood the temptation to want to seek vengeance against corrupt, unjust authorities, whether they're police or they're politicians or their parents. Nevertheless, though they're corrupt, though they hurt, though they steal, though they undermine, though they break every law in the books and kill, still do not take vengeance on anybody. It's not our job. God says it's his job. It is, it is a, to have a messianic complex, the Messiah complex, to think that we have a right to take vengeance. It's the height of arrogance and it is it's just a great example of being completely deceived by the deceiver but it does beg this question when you see unjust authorities even clearly breaking laws is there a time for active violence is there a time where there where active violence is ever justified i just want to just be clear Questions, uh, the, the question I ask is, is active violence justified? Not, is sinning ever justified? Sinning is never justified. Vengeance is never justified. But I do think active violence might be justified, and this is how. Consider an invasion of a house. Or a terrorist enters the church with a gun. Is there ever a time when retaliation on a soccer field might be justified? Or getting cut off and hazardous drivers? These are all questions people wrestle with. Is there ever a time? I do think there is a time. And this is, this is how I want to, I think, illustrate it. Um, imagine that your kids got into a, just a violent fight, or if you don't have kids, two really close friends, maybe your parents even, and you were seriously concerned for the life of that child or that friend or parent. What would you do What if it was so severe you recognize unless you use violent force, somebody's going to die? Well, I think in such cases, that's totally justified. It is totally justified to use violence to stop further violence. That's not sinning, that's actually preventing sin. It's an act of mercy, actually. So sometimes you have to resort to some sort of violence to prevent violence taking place. But after having separated those two people who are violently angry with one another, that doesn't give you justification to then take a baseball bat or a chainsaw or whatever sort of evil instrument and continue to um, massacre that person, dismember them or whatever. You have enough justification to use violence to stop violence but once that violence is stopped there is no justification to further it and i think the same principle applies to soldiers on a battlefield police officers and also to parents and i think the same is true of violent words sometimes you need to use violent words to stop somebody else using violent words but don't go beyond that It's, it's helpful to recognize that anger is a, an emotion that's actually being given by God. It's not a product of the fall. It, it's a gift that has been given to us to deal with problems. Lu Piello in his book, Heart of Anger, notes that anger is a gift to solve problems. And, and so we need to use anger and all the adrenaline, the energy, the focus that it gives us to solve the problem. Not to attack the other individual, but to get to the heart of what's going on. Sometimes we can just be so self centered and so passive that we don't get involved in problems that we should get involved in. It's sometimes right to get angry to give us the energy to solve the problem that is at hand. And so we need to use it that way, but we need to be very careful not to be deceived by it. We are to be angry, but we are not to sin. Because anger especially is prone to the devil's manipulations. I mean, anger can be very empowering. You can feel strong as ten men sometimes when consumed with rage. And likewise, looking at the previous command, hiding in the darkness of deception can make one feel really strong and secure and safe. In reality, though, you're more weak. Both have... The tendency to deceive. And I think to illustrate this. um, I I think of the, the book or the movie. The Hobbit. Most of you have probably read it or watched it. And you know that whenever Bilbo. Put on the ring of power. He could disappear. He could escape from all the troubles of the world. So we thought. And. It made him feel powerful, strong, mighty. It was the ring of power after, after all. But he also confesses that having worn the ring, it began to make him feel thin. And the words he uses, I think, are just so, so um, fitting for those who get caught up in sin. He said he felt like butter that has been spread over too much bread. That's what sin does. It just thins us out. That's why we can't be deceived into giving into temptation. Just like Bilbo shouldn't have been deceived to putting on the ring. But what makes the hobbits so noble in the books is their ability to withstand that temptation. Unlike all the other creatures of Middle earth, the hobbits have the ability to withstand the temptation. And that's really a picture of Christians. Christians, because they've been born again, don't need to be deceived we can we cannot, we can prevent ourselves from yielding to the temptation to anger or to deceive other people because we no longer live for ourselves but for Christ and we are indwelt by the holy spirit we have the power to obey this command unlike unbelievers but i also think that's why it's important to address unbelievers too if you recognize that you are easily consumed by anger and you you would even describe yourself as a slave to it or you are just a profuse liar or there are certain sins in your life that, that that nobody knows about and you have kept secret and hidden for so long. That's probably an indicator that you're not a believer and it's important you recognize that. Believers don't live in darkness. They don't live in unrepentant sin and it's important that you recognize that. Because until you recognize that, you will never have freedom from your slavery. Until you recognize you really are enslaved to that sin, you will never be set free. And so if you recognize that's you, seek Christ today. Acknowledge it. Cry out to Him. He alone can save you. And even if you think you've been a believer for years, cry out to Him. Make certain. Set yourself free by crying out to Christ to set you free from your slavery to sin. Only He can set you free. And let me pray for you now. Father, I do ask that you would help believers to resist every temptation, particularly to deceit and to anger. And for anyone listening who, if, who recognizes they are enslaved to anger or sin or to lust or to Uh, depression, to self-pity, to whatever form of sin. God, that they would cry out to you in desperation. Give them grace. Open their eyes so they would cry out to you and give them all the grace necessary. Give them your Holy Spirit so that they would be born again and experience for the first time freedom. Permanent Freedom. From this sin that so easily entangles. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.